I'm going to start by uh, with a sort of personal note, you could say, um, reflecting on where we are uh, this particular time of the year is, as everybody knows, Black History Month in this country. And I remember when I was young, there was no Black History Month. In fact, when I was young and first became interested in history, there was really nothing that really could be considered, I guess, what people call today black British history. That's to say the history of those of African heritage or those of African and Caribbean heritage in this country. So in a sense, I'm a, a product of that absence. The fact that that history was hidden from me as a young person, as a teenager growing up in this country. And it made me want to uncover that history. In fact, to question why there was such an absence, why I couldn't find out anything or it was very difficult to find out anything about that history. Of course, at that time, the history of, of Africa itself um, was, you could say, hidden to some extent. There were well-known professors in this country saying that Africa had no history and so on. And so it was very important for me growing up to if you like, to, to find evidence that there was such a history. And it's really what started me on my, I wouldn't say my career, but my interest in, in researching this history. So I'm going to sort of continue with that uh, personal element, if you like, in the remarks that I make tonight. I've entitled this presentation the African diaspora in Britain. I suppose I could have called it many different things, but I thought it was important to emphasize the, the African character, if you like, of those that I'm talking about. Um, the picture we can see here is a rather interesting one, and I've, I could say, written about the person pictured. I suppose the question is, who is this person? Uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, people would have said it was Alado Equiano. Today, some people think it's maybe Ignatius Sancho. It's clearly somebody who was very significant in the 18th century, but it's a bit, a bit like the history that I'm interested in. We think we know something about this history, but it has elements that we're not too sure about. And this figure was clearly important enough to be painted in the 18th century. And in a sense, you could say he represents all those thousands of Africans who were here in this country at that time that perhaps we don't know um, very much about, but we need to know much more about those figures. And I'll say more about that um, a little bit later. The other thing I think it's important to, to mention in talking about the African diaspora is to emphasize the links between Britain and the African continent, which go back many, many thousands of years. And I'm gonna try and talk about some of those links in my comments this evening. So I've used this image. This is from a, a recent exhibition from the Museum of London to take us back maybe a couple of thousand years to round about the third century of the present era. Uh, 
And this particular picture, clearly showing a person, a woman of African heritage, was, I'm, I'm assuming it was used to publicize the exhibition because the exhibition was of, or related to, skeletons which were being examined from the Roman period. And what those skeletons, or some of those skeletons showed, particularly with the latest techniques of DNA analysis and so on, was that many of those Romans, or some of those Romans buried in London, were from Africa. Um, there was one in particular who was a, a young woman, probably a teenager, um, sometimes called the Land Street Teenager, who was buried in London, died at a young age, probably about 14 or 15 years old. But clearly, she, her origins were in Africa. There are other skeletons of that kind, both buried in London and in other parts of the country. Um, in, not in, on the south coast, there's the find of Beachy Head Woman, as she's known, who was also a Roman of African origins. There are several of these finds. And what they illustrate is that not only the Africans have been here for a very long time, for at least 2,000 years, they also tell us something about the Roman population, that it was an extremely diverse population, and also that these Africans were very often young people, perhaps born here or coming here at a very early age. Why did they come? Were there whole African families here? Some of these young people were probably born in this country or they're of African ancestry. So it presents to us a very interesting picture of Roman Britain, and as it's given rise to the expression of one famous historian who said that Africans were here before the ancestors of the English. That may not be quite right, and I'll address that in a moment, but it shows that the, the history of Africans in Britain is not something that began after the Second World War in, or in 1948, but it's an extremely long history. And you could say that this African diaspora, those who are African in terms of heritage and origin, uh, has an, an immense history. It's really part of Britain's history. And there's no reason why we should understand Britain's history apart from the history of those who came here from Africa or whose families came here from Africa. Whether that's 2,000 years ago, 20 years ago, two years ago, it's part of Britain's history. Another of these African Romans is presented here, or reconstructed here, we could say, from another skeleton found in the city of York and analyzed in the last 10 years or so. She's generally known as the ivory bangle lady because she was buried with ivory and jade bangles. Again, clearly somebody of African heritage, a young woman. The interesting thing about her again, not only is it another woman, but she was also clearly somebody of some prestige, some wealth. And this has allowed historians to draw the conclusion that not only was there an African population here, but that population was of different social classes. 
Certainly it wasn't a population of those who were enslaved, which would perhaps would have been the ideas that people would have had about Africans in Roman Britain uh, some years ago. And this is, of course, just one of those Africans who were um, around in Britain at that time. We could go further by looking at some of the others, people like Septimius Severus, who was not only from North Africa, from Libya, but was actually a Roman emperor who was buried in York, died in York, buried in York in the third century. So at that time, the, the ruler of Britain, the ruler of the Roman Empire was of African birth. Or the African governor of Roman Britain, um, Quintus Lollicus Urbicus, who was probably from what is today Algeria. And it's thought that both Septimus Severus and uh, Lollicus Urbicus were both Berbers in origin, as I said, coming from what is today Libya and Algeria. So if we wanted to understand Roman Britain, it would be very difficult without having some reference to these Africans who were key participants, key personalities. And why should we think of Roman Britain in any other way than it was? That is a diverse, multicultural, if you like, population which existed at that time. So this, uh, this history tells us a lot about Britain. Not only that Britain has for many, many centuries been a country of immigrants, but that some of these immigrants have come from the African continent. Now, if we go back even further, um, maybe about 10,000 years ago, we would have met this gentleman and others who looked very much like him. And again, people are probably familiar with the latest discoveries and analyses of Cheddar Man, as he's known. And Cheddar Man used to be presented as a rather blonde and blue-eyed um, and looking, anyway, looking blonde and blue-eyed. Um, but the latest reconstruction and DNA analysis have shown that although he was blue-eyed, he wasn't blonde-haired, and he was rather uh, dark-skinned. In fact, when the analyses were printed in the, the papers, all of them had headlines about the first Britons were black people and so on and so forth. And it's very, very likely that not only everybody else in Britain 10,000 years ago looked very much like Cheddar Man, but probably most of the people in Europe looked something like that as well. They and their, or their ancestors came from Africa and traveled probably through Western Asia and parts of Europe. So if we wanted to go back far enough, we would, could even say that the earliest Britons or some of the earliest Britons were black people. Um, and what's interesting about Cheddar Man is that his genes are still around in the population today. So these really were the first Britons in terms of gene pool and so on. In other words, looking at the history of Britain, we find great diversity. We, we find a country of immigrants. We find a country of people who came from Africa throughout the centuries. This is nothing new. It's not a post-war phenomenon. It's part of Britain's history. It's true that some of it may not yet have been fully uncovered. Uh, maybe only a few skeletons have been analyzed because it's quite an expensive process. But there are many other connections 
which have been found, and I'm sure more and more will be found in years to come. So we really have to think about or rethink how we think of the history of Britain. It's a very long way from the ideas of, I remember the education secretary, Michael Gove, a few years ago, wanted a, a national curriculum in schools which was all about the white men of property uh, to the exclusion of everybody else. So this is not an honest representation of Britain's history, either today or in the past. So moving forward about, well, several thousand years from uh, Cheddar Man to the seventh century, to the Anglo-Saxon period. And I just wanted to give an example of one other African, and that was the abbot Hadrian, who came to this country at the end of the seventh century, 670 or that kind of period. And he was another North African. Again, uh, it's thought that he was prob probably from Libya, though it's not entirely clear where he came from. He was originally offered the post of Archbishop of Canterbury, which he declined, but he came with uh, an archbishop. And by all accounts, and he's referred to by the Venerable Bede, and Bede describes him, or the translation of what, how Bede described him is a, a man of African race uh, or a man of African heritage, we might say today. He came, he based himself in Canterbury. He's thought to have played a major part in the reconstructing or, yes, restructuring of the Christian church to have played a key role in the development of Anglo-Saxon literature in terms of the material that he brought with him from North Africa and to have played an important role in education more generally because he brought books from North Africa on astronomy, philosophy, and so on and so forth. So this is just one individual from Africa who played a key role in that period, just as an, an illustration of, if you like, the richness and diversity of Britain or of England's history. There are other, maybe lesser examples or other alternative examples of those who were around in this period. Uh, but obviously in a presentation like this, I can't go into all of them in detail. So just to give, just to give one, one example. So I want to move on to, um, to come back to my own experience and my own research. I'm jumping into the 18th century. Um, when I began my research, I guess uh, nearly 40 years ago, is that, is that right? Sounds like too long a time ago. 35 years ago, something like that. There were very few people researching this history of the African diaspora in Britain. There were perhaps two or three of us, something like that. And I wanted to look at, or my focus was African students. I wanted to know something about why Africans, like, I guess like my own father, had come here in the past. Um, I was concerned that a presentation of this history was being given at that time, that it was all post-war, it was all post-1948. It had a kind of Caribbean focus to it, which didn't seem correct or right to me. So I wanted to look at those who came from the African continent as students, at that time just as students. Obviously my interest widened as the years went on. 
I was particularly interested to look at the period before the Second World War. I was also interested to know how they dealt with the kind of problems that I'd encountered myself, problems of racism and so on, and of course how they dealt with problems of colonialism and other uh, challenges of that kind. So I was interested in the, the political activities, the political organizations of, of Africans in general in this country. And my research took me back well beyond the 20th century, although I, I focused on the 20th century. It took me back to the 18th century um, when it became almost fashionable for well-to-do, wealthy Africans to send usually their sons to Britain to be educated. And this is an example and of one of those sons who was sent from West Africa to Britain as a, as a student. But his example tells us much more about the relationship which existed between Britain and West Africa at that time. His name was William Anser. He came from, I guess, what is today a part of, of Ghana. His father was engaged in the business of human trafficking, which many people will know in the 18th century was the business of Britain. It was the main activity, the main commercial activity, financial activity of Britain. At that time, Britain was the world's leading human trafficker, um, and human trafficking was a kind of raw monopoly, essentially, but it was um, integral to every economic activity in Britain at that time. So William Anser was the, the other side of that relationship, if you like. He was the son of a, an African human trafficker. And this human trafficker wanted William to come to Britain to learn useful things for that business. Unfortunately, on his way here, he was put in the care of a rather unscrupulous person who decided to kidnap him and traffic him and sell him as a slave. And this is what he did. And William was enslaved and taken to Barbados. And eventually his father got to hear about this and his father didn't, uh, wasn't impressed with the irony of the situation, let me put it that way. And he said to his business partners, the Royal Africa Company, that if my son is not returned to me immediately, um, well, until my son is returned to me, there will be no more human trafficking from my particular part of the coast of West Africa. So clearly this was a, a great problem. So the Royal Africa Company sent its envoys to Barbados. They found William. They brought him back to England. They allowed him or they uh, helped him to, uh, to stay. He actually stayed in the house of the president of the Board of Trade, who was the, the government minister responsible for human trafficking at that time. They took him to the opera, took him to the theater, took him to the tailors, brought him his nice suit of clothes. A little biography was written about him. His portrait was painted. And after a holiday of a couple of months, he was taken back to his father in West Africa. And his father thanked the Royal Africa Company, the British government, and said, right, now human trafficking can recommence again. So this would-be student 
tells us very much about Britain in the 18th century. Of course, it's just an example, but it tells us very much about what was going on um, at, a, at an economic level, at a political level. And this is Britain's history. There's no point in hiding it. It's also Africa's history. It's also the history of the Caribbean and so on. Uh, but it's important that we understand that history. And by looking at this history of the African diaspora, we learn more about that history, more about the history of Britain in that period. Now, of course, there were many other Africans in Britain who had a slightly different uh, experience to William Anser, um, because there were many hundreds, probably thousands of Africans here in the 18th century who were in a position of, of servitude, of, of essentially of, of slavery. Um, and what we know about those Africans is that many of them engaged in the political activity of self-liberation. They absconded from their owners, they um, ran away. And, and here we see, or I've represented here a, a kind of typical uh, wanted poster from that period. This one is, a, you could say, is from an honest owner uh, because the owner tells you that somebody has run away. Those who were dishonest would just say that they'd lost uh, a person, a man or a woman or a child. So we know that Africans at that time liberated themselves. And of course, we know from all sorts of other sources that those who were concerned with human trafficking were rather alarmed that Africans were behaving in this way, that they were helping each other to escape, and that the working people of England were also helping them escape. So again, looking at this kind of history tells us, again, something about the history of Britain, that, of course, some people were very interested in human trafficking and maintaining it, but other people were opposed to it and acted um, to support those Africans who found themselves uh, enslaved in this country. Now, some of those Africans who were here at that time um, played a very important role in this growing opposition to human trafficking by speaking and by writing. And writing, presenting the views of Africans was extremely important because the racism which was being developed at that time presented Africans as uh, unthinking, um, as impossible of uh, feeling the same kind of emotions that Europeans felt and so on. So Africans brought their, their voice to what was a, a growing movement of opposition to human trafficking. And here we have the, the frontispiece of the book of Otabar Kogwana, one of those famous Africans based in London at that period. Here is another of them, Alaudo Equiano. Both of them involved in the... Equiano was also a best-selling author whose autobiography was so influential in that growing movement. Both of them were members of the, the Sons of Africa, a kind of organization of Africans at that time that wrote to the press and connected with others who were uh, concerned to oppose human trafficking and enslavement in that period. So I think what's important about this movement which developed at that time is that it was a, 
perhaps one of the first mass political movements in this country in the 1780s, 1790s, a movement involving working people, women, children, people signing petitions, people boycotting the consumption of sugar, one of the biggest political movements in Britain's history. But when we, we, we hear about abolition, um, I remember when we had the bicentennial of the parliamentary abolition, was that 13 years ago or something, we heard a lot about Parliament, we heard a lot about Wilberforce, we heard a lot of, maybe a little bit about Granville Sharp. But the hundreds of thousands of people who took part in that mass movement, in which Africans played a key role, we, we hear very little about. And it's strange that we, or perhaps it's not strange, that we don't hear about what ordinary people were doing in Britain at that time. Uh, and if we don't hear that history, it, um, it has an impact on us today. Um, because people have the impression that everybody in Britain was somehow a supporter of human trafficking and enslavement, and quite the opposite was the case. Yes, the rich and powerful, the great and the good, very often were supporters of human trafficking. Uh, but for many ordinary people, quite the opposite was the case. And a good illustration of that is the London Corresponding Society, which was one of the working class organisations at that time, of which Equiano was a member. And the London Corresponding Society campaigned for the rights of working people in this country. Of course, at that time, working people had no rights, and no right to vote, and so on. But what is, was important about this organisation, as I say, which Equiano belonged to, were its political principles. And its secretary, a man called Thomas Hardy, wrote to uh, somebody else to say that, he wrote and said, if you are, I'm paraphrasing now, if you are interested in the rights of Africans, I assume that you're for the rights of working people in this country. Uh, because we, it's our view that if you're for the rights of one, you must be for the rights of all. If you're for the rights of working people in this country, you would also be for the rights of Africans. So this political principle is very important. And the fact that that developed in the 18th century, it runs through a lot of British history, uh, but perhaps it's something which people want to hide and they don't wish us to, to understand it. But that was, it was this, this politics, these principles that people like Equiano uh, made their contribution. And that tradition was carried forward into the 19th century by people like William Cuffey. William Cuffey was, uh, was born in, in Kent, in Chatham, in the late 18th century, the, the, the son of uh, somebody who came from St. Kitts, a seafarer of that time. And William Cuffey became one of the leaders of the Chartist organization in London, the Chartists who were campaigning for parliamentary reform, for the rights of working people to vote and so on. So William Cuffey, we could say, another representative of this African diaspora, a campaign for those rights which we enjoy, if that's the right word, and which we possess to some degree uh, today. Um, and again, he's just one of those who fought in that period, but why, why should we not know 
that somebody of African heritage or of Caribbean heritage, if people want to, to use that phrase, was one of those fighters alongside others who were perhaps less known or perhaps still unknown at that period. So this is all part of this rich history of the African diaspora. But I kind of got diverted from talking about the 20th century, which was where my main research was um, focused. <clears throat> and again, I can't talk about everything, but um, the 20th century for me was fascinating because it was a, a period when we really see the organizing of those Africans who were here to deal with the problems that, that faced them. Um, the problems of colonial rule, the problems of racism, the problems of Eurocentrism in various forms. And one of the first organizations that was formed, not the first, but one of the early organizations is the Nigerian Progress Union, which you can see a picture here, formed in, in 1924 in London. Um, a significant organization, I'll say a little bit, little bit more about it in a moment. Um, it was, as I say, one of the first opportunities that Nigerians in this country had to get together, to discuss their uh, concerns, both about what was going on in Britain, but also what was going on, about, going on in Nigeria at that time, and especially the consequences of um, colonial rule and all the ramifications of colonial rule. One of, the, one of the aspects of colonial rule they were concerned about was education, because in colonial Africa at that time there were no universities. So if you wanted to study to be a professional of any kind, a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, you would have to come to Britain or to come to some European country or the US because no university education and very little secondary education existed under colonial rule. So one of the things they were very concerned about was how to develop education in that period. Now some of them involved in the Nigerian Progress Union then became involved in a much uh, bigger and more um, long-lasting organization, the West African Students' Union. And as I began studying these organizations, I became, it became obvious that this wasn't just a study of British history or even of African history, but it was an international history because it had so many international connections. And here you see them pictured in the probably 1934, 1935 in Camden. They'd already established their hostel with money that they'd raised in West Africa. And sitting in the middle of them, we can see Paul and his lander Robeson. Uh, Paul Robeson, the famous African-American actor, singer, political activist, communist, who was the patron of the West African Students' Union. And he later wrote that he discovered Africa in London. And the reason is because he was around all of these Africans, not just students, because he also knew African workers. So this interest that I had in the African diaspora in Britain led me into lots of other avenues and research interests because they were all interconnected. This is the paper of a later organization which grew out of the West African Students' Union. It's called the Committee of African Organizations. It's formed in 1958, a very, very important organization. It was 
what can we say? It was the organization which founded the anti-apartheid movement in Britain. It was involved in the beginnings of the anti-nuclear movement and took part in the, the Aldermaston marches. It was involved in the aftermath of the uh, Notting Hill riots, as they're called, of 1958 and the, the murder of, the racist murder of Kelso Cochrane. In fact, they were the leading organization involved in organizing the funeral of Kelso Cochrane. Later, they invited uh, Malcolm X to Britain to come and speak at their Congress. And one of their leading members went on to be one of the kind of pioneers of the, what became the Black Power Movement in this country. So just looking at this one aspect of, as I say, the history of the African diaspora in Britain led me into so many different avenues and aspects of history, both of British history and of other history. I mentioned a few moments ago the Nigerian Progress Union, but I forgot to mention the Nigerian Progress Union was jointly founded by this woman who was a Jamaican, Amy Ashwood Garvey, the first, I should say, I was going to say the first wife of Marcus Garvey. Maybe I should say that, um, anyway, yeah, she was the first wife of Marcus Garvey. But she was an extremely important political activist in her own right. In Britain from the 1920s to the early 19, the late 1950s at least, she was involved in all kinds of organizations. She owned a restaurant in New Oxford Street. She had a nightclub in Carnaby Street. She was an impresario. She was involved in so, so many things. And she, again, she also is part of this rich history with so many connections in the United States, the Caribbean and elsewhere. And she was also involved in organizations like the International African Service Bureau, whose publication is shown here, an organization established in the 1930s concerned with um, opposition to colonial rule in Africa, but also elsewhere in the world, uh, organized by people like George Padmore, um, Isaac Wallace Johnson, Amy Ashwood Garvey, and many others. And also connected with the students that I was concerned about. So I found that these students were not just organizing on the basis of being Africans, but alongside others in the African diaspora uh, from the Caribbean and from, from elsewhere. And of course, they took up all the key problems of the day. And here we see a photograph from Cardiff in Wales of an anti-war demonstration. This is probably almost certainly a demonstration of, of communists or those sympathetic to communism in that period, concerned about the growing fascism. As you can see there, a, a banner remembering the fascist invasion of Ethiopia and calling for collective security at that time, which was the, the policy espoused by the Soviet Union to prevent the um, the further development of, of fascism during that period. So the history of the African diaspora in this country um, is, of course, part of the history of, of Britain at that period. Uh, it shows that Africans, those of African heritage, were as concerned about all the burning issues of the day, um, the rise of fascism, the prospect of war, as anybody else in the country, and took a, a leading role. It, it shows us British history and all its, um, 
all its diversity, if you like. And then, of course, these African students that I was interested in were also involved in the Pan-African movement. And um, I took a particular interest in the, the fifth Manchester Pan-African Congress in 1945 and researched and wrote about it. But African students were involved in all the previous um, the four Pan-African Congresses preceding it, as well as the Pan-African Conference, which was organized in London in 1900. We can almost say that Pan-Africanism was a, I'm sure my uh, friends in the US will, and, and also in Africa will pardon me if I say this, but it's almost like a British development, Pan-Africanism developed uh, in Britain to some degree. But what, was in, what is important is the, or the significance, I guess, of this Congress was that it, it signaled that those in the African diaspora, not just in Britain but elsewhere, were determined to rid themselves of, of colonial rule um, and would unite with others to achieve their aims. And one of the interesting things about this Congress is the internationalism of its uh, political orientation. Um, the placards along the wall deal with questions of anti-Semitism, what's going on in Palestine, the question of oppressed people of all countries uniting for their liberation. And the placard in the corner is a, a quote from Karl Marx, labor in the white skin cannot emancipate itself while labor in the black skin is enslaved. And in fact, just before this Congress, which we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of this year, or last week. Um, just before this Congress, there were similar Congresses, not just of those of African heritage, but involving those of Indian, Sri Lankan, Burmese, and so on, heritage as well in this country. All of those who um, were suffering and oppressed by colonial rule in this country. And of course, they were part of a wider anti-colonial movement in this country and organizations like the League Against Imperialism and so on. So this, again, is a very important aspect of Britain's history, which I guess when you study the African diaspora, it's, it's impossible to ignore this, which is also a, a, very often a hidden history. Um, but it's very important this, this history should be presented to the world and particularly to young people. Um, I know the Prime Minister last week was saying we should be proud of Britain's history, but which history is he talking about? Um, the history of colonialism and human trafficking? I don't think so. But certainly the history of those who organised and campaigned against human trafficking, against colonialism, for the rights of ordinary people, that's very, very important. Well, I've, I've emphasized that this history that I began to look at of just of, of West Africans in Britain became extremely, well, very quickly it was clear it was an international history. And this poster, I suppose, demonstrates that in, in, in several ways. First, because it, it talks about all the places where the journal which the West African Students' Union published was available, and that was all over the world. But the poster itself I found in uh, Washington DC of all places. I'm not quite sure how it got there. 
but it just shows that when you begin to examine this history, you find um, evidence for it, obviously not just in Britain, but in Africa, in the Caribbean, in the US, in Europe, in other parts of the world. It, it really is an international history, and it, it shows how Britain and those who resided in Britain at that time um, were, to use the modern phrase, transnational in their activities, their thinking, their networks, their connections, and so on. And, of course, some of these uh, students were connected with a, a very international network. That was the network or the international communist movement. And the international communist movement itself had organizations which spe were specifically focusing on the African diaspora. And so from my study of Africans in Britain, I began to be interested in uh, the international communist movement's work amongst those in the African diaspora uh, globally. It's, it's difficult to talk about all the individuals that um, came into my view or came up in my research. Um, and then whoever I mention, I'm going to leave out many important ones. Uh, this is a photo of Irene Igodalo, who was a, a doctor uh, trained in this country, as, of course, many African and Caribbean doctors did in uh, that period, the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and, in fact, even before that period. She was a, also involved in the West African Students' Union, West African Women's Association, which was established at that time. But uh, she's, oh, I've also presented her because she, she represents many other women who we don't have pictures of, um, who were very, very important in these movements that I was interested in. And going back to 1900 and the Pan-African Conference, which was held in London at that time, we usually associate that, or we used to associate that very much with a man called Henry Sylvester Williams, who was a Trinidadian lawyer based in Britain at that time. Um, but further research has now shown that, in fact, the African Association, which he and others established in 1897, was inspired and led by a woman, an African woman named Alice Kinlock. So, we could say that the modern Pan-African movement was inspired and initiated by an African, South African woman who happened to be visiting this country. And in fact, she was visiting the country in order to campaign about the plight of her compatriots, the workers in, in South Africa. Well, yes, again, there are many interesting figures. I just included Bandeli Omoni, a Nigerian student, because he was one of the first people that I wrote, ever wrote about. This is 30 years ago, something like that. He was um, slightly unusual in several ways because he was here beginning of the century, 1907, 1908, something like that. He was unusual in the sense that he, many African students in that period came from quite wealthy backgrounds, but he didn't. He'd managed to come through ways I won't go into at the moment. 
But he's also interesting for his, his activities, his political activities. He wrote a book, he had a book published as a young man called A Defense of the Ethiopian Movement, which was a, a kind of defense of Pan-Africanism, a defense of Africans, and which had a, a kind of global scope to it. He had a very interesting history, um, and again, showing us something about the, the transnationalism of the African diaspora, and it, because he ended up in Brazil, and in fact died in Brazil at the age of 27, so not long after this photo was taken. Of course, there are all kinds of connections between Nigeria and Nigerians and Brazil, which I haven't got time to go into tonight. But again, this history of the African diaspora in Britain is just such a rich history, taking us into all kinds of avenues and interesting paths. This gentleman is uh, Ladipo Sholanke, another Nigerian who was the founder of the Nigerian Progress Union, the West African Students' Union, a very influential figure, and one of those kind of key figures which emerged from my work on the, the, in the 20th century. He was a campaigner for over 30 years for the rights of Africans in this country against colonial rule. Um, now, as so much could be said about him, but just to uh, perhaps bring him to pe people's attention, uh, if, he, if he's unknown. He was also one of those, he was the main, he was the Secretary General of the West African Students' Union and was involved in fundraising activities in West Africa in order to provide the first hostels which these West Africans established in London. Because of course at that time, racism in this country was, was legal. There was a, what was called the color bar, which meant it was very difficult for Africans, other people of African heritage, to find accommodation, um, all kinds of problems. So the students decided they needed their own place. And they also needed a place to discuss their political activities. And so they, they established their own hostel. Eventually they had about three throughout London. And the, uh, it also, my research has also brought me into the knowledge of these very fascinating figures, um, some of whom were not just political activists, but also communists. And so the people like Desmond Buckle, who was um, from what is today Ghana, but spent most of his life in Britain, uh, was a lifelong member of the British Communist Party. Len Johnson from Manchester, the famous boxer, also uh, somebody who was a victim of the color bar, because at that time, uh, if you were not of pure European descent, you could not compete for a British boxing title. So he was probably the best middleweight boxer in Britain, but he could never compete for a British title. But he devoted himself to um, trying to earn a living from boxing, but then also was a political activist, a campaigner against the color bar, communist in in Manchester. And then there are those who were um, brought into the, our history of the African diaspora in Britain, like Claudia Jones, deported from the US and known for her activism in the 1950s, the development of the West Indian Gazette, um, and all sorts of other activity, and very much connected with the Committee of African Organizations that I mentioned earlier. 
so this history is so broad, it's, so, it's very, very difficult to present it, and I'm a bit conscious of time already, so I'm just going to go very, very quickly. This is another picture of West Africans in Camden, West African Students' Union Hostel, and I've already explained something about the union that was based in Britain, very, very active in Britain, but it was also based in West Africa. It had its branches throughout the four British colonies in West Africa, which meant that it was, a, again, a transnational organization. It organized in both places. And if something happened in Lagos, somebody would send a telegram to the Wasu headquarters in London. Here in London, there would be some sympathetic MPs. They would pass the message and the next day there would be a question in the House of Commons, what's going on in Lagos, much to the consternation of the colonial office. So this history, is this African history? Is this British history? This, what is this? is the history of the African diaspora, which knows no boundaries, you could say, no borders. Okay, so I wanted to, to end by talking about the post-war period very briefly, and I mentioned that when I started my research and my interest in the history of the African diaspora, I was, one of the things I was concerned about was that uh, this, this history is, was too often presented as something which, all, which happened after 1948. And I guess that's still true today because there is a, a kind of windrush fixation, as if windrush was the the start of everything. Of course, Windrush is very interesting. Um, it wasn't, clearly wasn't the first boat to take ex-servicemen back to the Caribbean or the first boat to bring ex-servicemen and others from the Caribbean back to Britain. There were others. The Windrush was filmed and has then taken on kind of mythic proportions. Um, and the idea which everything, everything starts from there and everything has a, a kind of Caribbean slant to it. And it, it, it's amazing how this, how, um, how established these ideas have become. Um, and I remember there was a, a BBC film a few years ago talking about, I can't remember what it's called, it's called something like Black Angels or something the women who save the NHS. And they talk about all of these nurses and so on. But nearly all the people they interview in the film are, came from the Caribbean. Now, of course, there are many nurses who came from the Caribbean in that period, but there are also many nurses who came from countries in Africa in that period. And I think that the danger of, the danger is that we have uh, we're beginning to have a kind of single story. And there is a great danger to having a single story um, because people are then, some people are excluded. And there seems to be like a hierarchy of histories. Um, then you could say to perhaps counteract that, people go in the opposite direction. So there are those who have written about a woman called Kofawarala Abeni Pratt, who was a Nigerian nurse who trained in this country in the 1940s and 
somebody has claimed that she was the she was she was the first black nurse in the NHS. Well, um, clearly there were many nurses before the creation of the NHS. The, the slide you can see is of one of them. This is Princess Sahai, who was the daughter of Emperor Haile Selassie and trained as a nurse at Great Ormond Street in the 1930s, and then had a rather tragic death. And of course, there, there are many others. Um, and uh, this is a, a picture of uh, another famous African nurse, Nurse Ademola, as she was known at the time of the film, which was made about her during the war years in 1943-1944. And similarly, at the time of the creation of the NHS, there were many nurses and many, not just from the Caribbean, but also from the African continent. And it shouldn't be the case that those from the African continent are excluded from this important history. So there's much that could be said. I haven't been able to say very much of it. Um, I think you heard at the beginning of the lecture some mention of this book, which came out, I think it's being published today, um, today or tomorrow, depending on um, which, which date people think is the, the correct one. This, again, is an attempt to present this history, but for young people. So it doesn't include all of the things that I've said tonight, but some of the things that I've said tonight. Um, as you also heard, I'm working on a much longer book to cover this entire history. But it's an extremely difficult thing to do. It's a very, very long and diverse history. There's always the danger of leaving things out. There's always the possibility that new things are being discovered. But it's very much part of the history of Britain, integral to the history of Britain. And it certainly shouldn't be hidden uh, any longer. It should be part of Britain's history, just like any other part of Britain's history, known by everybody, certainly known by young people. And I hope I've been able to give just a little um, survey, summary of some of that history as it relates to my own work and studies over many years. So thank you for listening. Professor Addy, thank you for that really interesting lecture. Um, we do have a few questions from the audience. In fact, we have quite a few questions from the audience. I don't think we'll be able to get through all of them, but we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, one of the most popular questions I think you addressed near the end of your lecture, mm -hmm. and this was, um, would you prefer to see black history taught as a separate or an integrated part of school history? I would, pref I would prefer that it was taught as an integrated part of school history. Um, <clears throat> you see, when, as soon as we start saying black history, what do we mean when we say that? Um, do we mean the history of Africa? Do we mean the history of the African diaspora? It's a, quite a broad question. But the important thing is that our young people should learn about history so that they understand the world in which they live. So they need to understand the relationship between Britain and Africa, or Britain and the Caribbean. They need to understand that Britain has already always had this diversity. 
has always been a country of migrants, that Africans have played an important role in that history, just as in the history of Europe or the history of... Um, they shouldn't grow up with the idea that Africa has no history or that Africans have never contributed anything. So we have to have a history, whether in schools or universities, that gives people an understanding of the world in which they live, not a one-sided uh, history which only focuses on the white men of property or some other minority. Thank you. Um, one of the audience members has said, I note Professor Addy is studiously referring to human trafficking rather than slavery. I understand the reasons behind this, but I was wondering if he thinks this is a general term of, excuse me, if he thinks this is a general change of terminology that we should be pursuing. That's a difficult question. Um, <clears throat> I think that we should speak of it as it is with probably terms that are meaningful, meaningful for us today. Um, you know, it certainly was human trafficking. If we talk about, in previous years, of course, people talked about the slave trade. And of course, there was a transaction going on of, of sorts. Um, but it, essentially, it was human trafficking which today is generally considered uh, a crime. And I think we should look at the human trafficking of millions of African men, women, and children as a, one of the great, greatest crimes in history. Um, I think it's very important to look at it in that way. And those who were involved who were human traffickers should be seen as criminals, those who committed crimes against humanity, not glorified as some people want to glorify them today by protecting their statues or even having statues of such criminals. Um, I mean, would human traffickers today, would there be statues of modern human traffickers? I don't think so. So I think the terms we use are important. There are, of course, other terms. But I think human trafficking is, is quite a useful way of um, explaining to people, especially young people, exactly what was going on um, for those many centuries in the past. A related question. Um, we have an audience member who was surprised to learn that the slave trade was the biggest single element in, British, um, in the British economy in the 18th century. And he was wondering if you could recommend uh, a good economic history textbook to further explore this. Um, <clears throat> I can't think of a... I'm not... I, couldn't, I can't think of a of one single textbook, but I would have thought any serious history of um, Britain in the 18th century would include this fact. It's, it's not something secret. Everything, everything that went on in Britain in the 18th century was connected with the, the African trade. Um, you know, all the major conflicts, um, and also to some extent in the late 17th century. So the national debt is connected with human trafficking. The Bank of England is connected with human trafficking, the banking system, the financial system, the insurance system, the development of London, development of Liverpool, all the major stately homes, all the major institutions, everything is connected. It's so I guess if you read a book and it doesn't have these things in it, then it's a bit of a waste of time. So I would have thought there are many, many. 
Um, I, I can't think of one offhand. But. I think you have quite a few sources um, in your transcript as well for further reading. There yes. are some sources in the transcript. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the key texts would be something like um, Capitalism and Slavery by... Eric Williams immediately comes to mind. But I, I, would, I would have thought, um, you know, I, to me it's not, it's not, not a secret. Um, I, should all, I would also say if you look at something like a book by Peter Fryer, Staying Power, um, he has quite a lot of information there, um, which is not an economic textbook, um, but is a, a general history. And I think that's also in my the sources that I put at the end of the transcript. Thank you. Why do you think we constantly hear about notable historical black people in the United States, but we do not hear the same of British black people or those who came to the United Kingdom and achieved success? Well, I think there are uh, a number of reasons for that. I mean, there was a time when there were even courses which were part of the national curriculum which focused on black people in the Americas, as they were called. Um, and I guess the way in particular the media operates is often to look at figures abroad. You know, we're very aware of, and of course, these African-American figures are often uh, internationally renowned and, and so on. And that's, that's true today. We, we tend to hear, we perhaps tend to know more about people of African heritage in the US who have been killed by the police than perhaps we do people in Britain of African heritage who've been killed by the police. Um, that, that's the way the media often works. And I think in the past is also a way of, um, particularly the media in Britain, looking at the, um, what should we say, the crimes that are committed in other countries and those who are... Um, opposing and fighting against those crimes rather than looking within Britain. Um, because the, the same kinds of or similar struggles as occurred in the United States in the 1960s occurred in Britain, or 1950s occurred in Britain, or 1930s or 1920s. Um, racism was just as prevalent here in, in terms of the size of population and so on. Um, racism existed here just as racism existed in the United States. So there's no reason why we shouldn't look here. But at the same time, there's a much greater development of that history in the United States. We still need more people to be working on this history here. And we have a, a problem that that's not really the case yet. Um, and the school curriculum, the university curriculum is still rather Eurocentric um, and we, we need to do much more to encourage much more research in this history, on this history in this country. Professor Adi, you've referred to the history of the African diaspora as a hidden history. Do you mean deliberately and if so, uh, by whom? I think it is, uh, yes, it's deliberately, has been deliberately hidden. Uh, or obscured, uh, and this is part of the Eurocentrism which we have to, you know, deal with in, the, in this country, that um, it's been considered unimportant. I think I gave the example of, of the history, just of the history of Africa, 
So Africa is the world's second largest continent. It's the birthplace of the whole of humanity. It has a you know, history dating back. It's the history where the first states existed, where the first of many things existed. But we have learned professors only a few years ago saying Africa has no history, or learned French presidents saying nothing ever happens in Africa. Um, so there's this dismissal of the history of Africa and therefore also a dismissal of the history of those of African heritage, of the African diaspora. This is unimportant. I gave the example of the former education minister, uh, Michael Gove, who just a few years ago was proposing a national curriculum which excluded nearly everybody apart from white men of property. So that's not a deliberate... Um, act, uh, I don't know what is. So yes, we, we're battling against that and the kind of inertia that goes along with it, that these things are unimportant. Why does it matter? Um, but as I, I've said, presenting the history as it is in a way that relates to us today, helps us understand the world today, helps us understand our place in it, um, reflects who we are, that, that's the kind of history that is, is important. And that will necessarily include many of the things I've spoken of tonight and many things I haven't had time to speak about. Um, will show the role of those of African heritage as well as those of Asian heritage. It will show history and it, its diversity, its interconnections. And that's what we, we need to see. And a final question. Um, it's actually a combination. A few people have asked about this about um, your view about the proposed closure of the Institute of Commonwealth Studies and the potential impact on teaching and research? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Um, I think, again, this is a reflection of um, the way the education, education system operates very often, particularly in higher education that, as I've just indicated, those aspects of history which are seen to be um, less important are terminated. You know, in my own experience, I used to teach on a course at a university I won't name, which concerned itself with um, people of African heritage, the history of people of Asian heritage and so on. It was, it was closed down. Um, so there are many examples, and I think that um, I'm not ex entirely sure what, exactly what teaching the Institute of Commonwealth Studies does, but um, I think, of course, it's important that these centres which specialise in um, the history of Africa or other parts of the Commonwealth, um, that everybody supports their existence. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the, all the reasons behind, but um, as I say, usually it's a question of, of resources, uh, but what needs to be thought about is that the whole question of education and enlightenment is not just a question of what makes money or what doesn't make money, but what is required to enlighten the citizens of this society. So. Um, it also points to the question of who makes the decisions. 
um, about what is required, what kind of education, what kind of curriculum, what kind of institutions we need. And often that decision-making power is in the hands of a very few people. And most of us have no say. And I think that these kinds of uh, occurrences point to the need for um, a different system of decision-making about these important questions. Professor Addy, thank you very much. Um, thank you for a wonderful, interesting lecture, and also for your generosity in answering so many questions. We haven't been able to get to them all, and I do apologize to those audience members who have asked questions. But please join us for the next lecture in the Black History Month series, which is happening next week. I believe that this has been highlighted in the chat for you. Once again, thank you very much, and thank you for coming tonight.